0: So today we're starting our study in the Old Testament book of Daniel. It's going to take a few months to study through. Normally what I try to do is I try to break everything down week by week so I know the exact week that I'm going to finish. But Daniel is so, even though it's only 12 chapters, there's so much, so I'm not going to stress myself out, okay? We're just going to roll till it's done, okay? Hopefully we're done before um, the summer, and uh, that's the goal. But, uh, you know, we're just going to roll with it till it's done. So it'll take a few months, but really this book is going, we're going to learn about aspects of Christian living for today. We're also going to w- learn about things to come, or in other words, the end times. The theme that we're going to go deal with throughout the book and throughout this study is faithful God. So when I say faithful, I mean, by definition, remaining loyal and steadfast, meaning God is loyal and steadfast to us. So in this book, we're going to witness times in which God's faithful to his own promises. We're going to witness times in which God's faithful to his people which, you know, is us and also Daniel and his friends and the people of Israel. And then we're going to see God really be faithful to promises that are yet to come, okay? And that's important. As we get to the latter end of Daniel, we're going to see yet to come, things that haven't happened yet. So whether it's an event that happens in the days before Daniel, during the days of Daniel, in our day now, or in events to come, we're going to see a picture of God's faithfulness. So the book of Daniel presents a record of a specific like of specific historical occurrences from the life of Daniel and his three friends. Now, these men were Jewish captives underneath the Babylonian government. The book was written by Daniel during the exile to, in Babylon in the 6th century BC. There most, most theologians, conservative theologians would say between 605 and 536, it was written by Daniel. So today from Daniel chapter 1, 1 through 7, we're going to learn about the impact of of our decisions. We're gonna learn about the impact of our decisions. Now, good or bad, we make decisions and they're gonna impact our, our future and they're also gonna impact the future of the people connected to us, okay? The decisions you make today are gonna to impact you, they're gonna impact your future, but they're also gonna impact the future of the people connected with us. Have you ever made a decision that radically impacted your life? or a decision that radically impacted your family? Do you realize that our family members have made decisions that radically impacted our lives, and some of those decisions were even made before we were born, before they knew who we were? When I think about my life, my uncle, my dad's brother, he bought a house in Harvey Cedars, New Jersey in 1968. Both sides of my family were from East Brunswick. My uncle sold that Harvey Cedars house to his parents the year that I was born in 1974. My dad and mom spent weekends there because that's what people from North Jersey did, right? They go down to shore, right? That's what they do. So my family went down to shore. And one of the people that went down was also my mom's father, my, my grandfather on my mom's side. He loved it down here and he found a little house, a little bungalow in Waretown on the lagoon and he wanted a boat. So in 1980, he bought this little bungalow house and got himself a boat and that was the other shore house that we used to go to. In 1986, sadly he passed and the Waretown house was left to my mother. Later that year, my mom decided we're gonna move down the shore permanently. So it sounds just like a little family history, right? And all of you have that little family history. But I'm telling you this because the decision that my family members made before I was even born radically changed and impacted my life. Because down here, I got to grow up on the Jersey Shore. I got to meet my wife. I got to go to a youth group at Mount and Baptist Church and become a Christian. Then I got to find out that this church was looking for a part-time youth pastor, and I became the part-time youth pastor here and went to Bible college during that time. And now here we are, 27 years later, in the same place, right? all because my uncle decided to buy a house in 1968 in Harvey Cedars. Now it sounds kind of simplistic, right? Like when you think about that, and we all have that type of story, but the decisions that we make don't just impact us today, they impact our family, our friends, our community for generations to come. The family history I told you in my opinion was a positive one, But what about the decisions that are made that are negative? Sometimes in life, our family members make negative and sinful decisions that maybe later on in our lives have consequences or generally make things more difficult. Maybe you can think of something like that that's happened in your family, a negative decision, a sinful decision that somebody made, and for generations to come, it kind of... Impacted and made things a little more difficult. Well, this is where the book of Daniel starts off. And we're going to start off in Daniel 1, 1 through 2. It says this In the third year of the reign of of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hand of with some of the vessels of God of the house of some of the vessels of the house of God excuse me and he brought them to the land of Shinar to the house of his God and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God so remember decisions right the impact of our decisions so here we have Jehoiakim the king of Judah Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon comes in besieges it takes it over but notice what it says here and the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Wait, what? Did I just read that right? The Lord actually did this, or the Lord gave him over, or the Lord allowed this? What is going on here? Why in the world would God allow or even do this or allow this to happen? Why in the world would he give his people and his king Of that time, over to Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, who was a godless person. Why would he do this? Does anybody else ask that question? Like, why in the world would God allow this to happen? Well, God did this because of sinful decisions made in the past, namely by a man, a king named Manasseh. He was the worst king That Israel ever had, that Judah ever had, and the sinful decisions made by him and the current king Jehoiakim, these decisions radically impacted God's people, and especially Daniel and his three friends, as we'll find out in the coming weeks. So let me just give you a little thumbnail on how God's people got to this point. In about the 80 years or so before this happened, Judah had a very bad king. His name was Manasseh. His father before him was a godly king. His name was Hezekiah. You might recognize that name. But when Manasseh took over, he did everything in his power to tear down the worship and focus of the one true God. He put offensive and cultic idols in the temple. He participated in child sacrifices to false gods. He instituted pagan worship within the temple. And anyone that went against him for doing these things were killed. Okay, so if somebody said, Manasseh, I don't think we should be doing this, well, you're dead. Okay, that's basically the way it went he had prophets from God come and warn him and tell him he killed them because they warned and spoke out against him. He was a very evil man. So now we pick up in 2 Kings. There's a lot of history in this message. say. In Second Kings 21, 10 through 15, it talks about this. It says, And the Lord said by his servants, the prophets, because Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these abominations and has done things more evil than all that of the Amorites did who were before him. And he has made Judah also to sin with his idols. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, behold, I am bringing upon Jerusalem and Judah such disaster that the ears of everyone who hears will tingle. So now God's saying, I'm mad, okay? I'm mad at this king and I'm mad at my people. And the judgment that's coming is not going to go well. So he goes on. And I will stretch over Jerusalem and the measuring line of Samaria and the plumb line of the house of Ahab. And I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish wiping it and turning it upside down. And I will forsake the remnant of my heritage and give them into the hand of their enemies. This is Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon, the hand of their enemies. And they shall become prey and a spoil to all their enemies because they have done what is evil in my sight and they have provoked me to anger since the day of their fathers came out of Egypt even to this day." So here we see a picture of God that we don't like, right? Okay. We don't like this. Nobody likes this. You know, come to church. I thought God was supposed to be so loving. What's going on here? Okay. Well, God has justice and he hates sin and he's mad about it. Okay. He's mad about it. So now we see this picture here and we're like, oh man, God is mad. He made promises to his people, and they walked away from those promises. They looked at God and said, we don't care. We're going to follow this king rather than you. This king looked at God and said, this "This shows us one, right, faithful God. What is God faithful to here? He's faithful to his own promises. He's faithful to himself. You follow me, and I will continue to bless you. You turn from me, and guess what? It's not going to go well. So where we are in Daniel, the people had another bad king, Jehoiakim, and his decision solidified this judgment. So Manasseh started the ball rolling in a sense, and Jehoiakim kind of sealed the deal, okay? So let's deal with the issue that comes up from time to time that you may have heard, and I think it can be a misrepresentation of the second commandment, okay? The question is this for us today, right? And here it is. Do we pay for the sins of past generations? Have you heard this before? Do we pay for the sins of the Father, okay? Well, this is based upon Exodus 20:4 through 6, Second commandment, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. People don't like that either, okay? I, am the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers of the children to the third and fourth generation... Of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So, the question I want to deal with briefly is this kind of like a little rabbit trail here is do we pay for the sins of the past generation? The answer is yes and no, okay? So let me just give you both contexts. The first context I want to deal with is the Old Testament. What's going on now? Daniel, the Old Testament before Jesus. The sacrifice of Jesus, right, was not complete at this point. So yes and no, because the past generations that don't focus on the Lord and worship other things, it sets up a culture that is devoid of God, and the future generations end up having no foundation. That was what was happening under Manasseh, okay? He set up this disgusting culture, and guess what? There was no foundation, okay? People didn't know which way was up. There was no Sunday school for the kids. There was nothing going on that was helpful for those generations. So in other words, yes, because if a godly person does not lead other people into godliness, those people will kind of pay the price in the sense that there's no foundation. So, but we notice here, it says the third and fourth the generations of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to the thousands of those who love me. So in some senses, now the answer is no If a person rises up out of that situation and says, no, I love God, okay? Now think about your life and your generation, your heritage, okay? Maybe nobody in your family worshiped and loved and served God, and you didn't see any real blessings from God because you were brought up in this godless environment, but now you come along and you get saved. You become a Christian. Now you're writing a new story, and all of a sudden you're seeing these blessings, and you're directly connecting it to the fact that you're one of these guys at the bottom, right? Or one of these girls at the bottom that love and keep the commandment. So now we have to deal with the question, though, more specifically for us today. Do we pay for the sins of the past generations? And the answer is, instead of yes and no, it's no and yes, okay? So does that make sense? As believers, Jesus paid for our sin right? As believers, Jesus paid for our sin. You come here each week, you hear me say something along these lines, right? We're all sinners in need of a Savior. Jesus is that Savior. He died on the cross to pay the price for our sins. Three days later, he rose again to prove that he is God. And The scriptures say, all who believe will have eternal life. That means when you believe in Jesus, you will receive eternal life eventually, but your sins are paid for. Now, if someone is not a believer, who pays for their sin? They do, okay? So they pay for their own sin. But like in the Old Testament context, when people before us take their focus off the Lord and do sinful things, it does actually impact us, doesn't it? When they do sinful things, it does actually impact us. Or in other words we might not see Jesus because of the things that they have done. So there may be consequences. Now think about this for a second. Go back a generation or two. Your grandfather commits a crime, gets thrown in jail, leaves your grandmother as a single mom of your mom, okay? Do you think that's going to have some impact on the way that your mom was brought up? Do you think that's going to have some kind of impact on the way that you're brought up because your mom was brought up by a single mom who had a husband that was in jail, okay? The decisions that grandpa made, okay, he's paying for them, okay? Or Jesus is paying for them if he becomes a Christian or is a Christian. But the consequences, the impact of what happened. And now we know in life, right, well, this happened, this happened, this happened, and then we meet, and and God brings good, right? God brings good, Romans 8, to those who love him. So, you know, we can go crazy trying to connect all the dots. Because, you know, like, I was thinking about this when I shared the illustration of my uncle buying the house in, in Harvey Cedars in 1968. Well, what if he bought a house in Tennessee, okay? I would like country music. That would be terrible, okay? So here's the thing. We can connect the dots, okay, as much as we want, right? I'm sorry if anybody likes country music. (laughs) Um, So, that said, the decisions that we make impact other people, okay? Jesus pays for the believer's sin, right? But the decisions that we make can impact other people. So, let's get back to Daniel. Here is what King Nebuchadnezzar did in Daniel. 1, 3 through 4, it says, Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, that's an official, okay, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, and learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans, that's the Babylonians. So here's what's happening. Now, the question is, he's looking for these young nobles, okay? These young guys, they were like, they had it all, okay? Imagine, you know, they were probably 15, 16 years old, so late teenagers, okay, They're jacked. They work out. They're smart. They're like, you know, these guys, they walk in and and like everybody's like, there's a good looking bunch of young guys here. That's what Daniel and his friends were. But how did they get like this? Okay, how were they educated? How were they young, godly men? How did this happen? See, normally when things go bad, because remember I talked about Manasseh and all the disgusting things he did. Well, normally when things go go bad, everything goes bad, right? That's what happens in like inner cities, right? People only rise to the level of their parents and their leaders. So where in the world did these guys come from? Well, there was some good news. Because in, in between Manasseh and Jehoiakim, there's a king tucked in there. And his name is Josiah. Now, Josiah was a good and godly king. And this was the environment that Daniel and his friends were brought up in. So Josiah, he, he wanted to make everything better for God's people. So due to his good decisions, King Josiah, the Lord held off, actually, for a time of his judgment. Okay, so after Manasseh, then his son, I think it was Amon, came and was king. And he was just as bad. Well, not just as bad, but he was bad. And it was just for a little while. And then Josiah rose up as king. And he was godly. Let's look at what he did. It says this. And the king commanded all the people, talking about Josiah, keep the Passover to the Lord your God, as it is written in the book of the covenant. For no such Passover has been kept since the days of the judges who judged Israel or during all the days of the kings of Israel, or of the kings of Judah. But in the 18th year of King Josiah, this Passover was kept to the Lord in Jerusalem. That it goes on. Moreover, Josiah put away the mediums. That's people that try to conjure up spirits. And the necromancers, that's like wizards and like magicians and the household gods and the idols and all the abominations that were seen in the land of Judah and Jerusalem. So basically, he house cleaned. He was like, nope, this isn't the way God's people should live. I'm going to come in here and I'm going to clean this stuff out. That he might establish the words of the law that were written in the book that Hilkiah the priest found in the house of the Lord. Before him, there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might, according to all the law of Moses, nor did any like him rise after. So he was a great king and no one was like him after. The decisions that King Josiah made set Daniel and his friends up for spiritual success in an environment Or prepare them for the environment that was going to be hostile toward the one true God. You know, when we think about the book of Daniel, we think about all the the Sunday school stories. Like Daniel's the hero, right? Well, really, God's the hero, okay? He's the faithful God. But Daniel was set up by a godly king to actually flourish in an environment that was going to be hostile and try to purge Every good and holy thing, from what Daniel knew. So Daniel and his friends were brought up in the ways of the Lord. They went to their little Sunday school class. It wasn't called Sunday school then, but they went. You know, they were they were taught the scriptures. They memorized the scriptures. They were taught this. They learned to worship. They learned to live by God's word. They learned to make decisions based upon the teaching of God's word. They learned to love God. They learned to love other people. The decisions made by King Josiah made them the nobles that they were. Made them the nobles that they were. Think about this. It made them the nobles that they were. And Nebuchadnezzar was like, I see that, that's good. I'm going to take it and I'm going to change it. That's what he tried to do. Now in life, we make micro small decisions right and we make macro big decisions i want to talk for a little bit about that so first we have macro decisions our big decisions right where are you going to live what house you're going to buy where are you going to go to college what career are you going to choose where are you going to work what church are you going to go to what school are you going to send your kids to these are big decisions that put you in places or put you around people and in situations that can determine many things in life. Right. The big decisions. And some of you sit back and say, wow, if I didn't go to that college, I wouldn't have met my spouse. Or if we didn't move down the shore, I wouldn't have found this church And heard the gospel. Like, so you start to make those big decision connections. But sometimes the macro decisions that we make are actually sinful, meaning we choose things like, I'm not. Going to church. I'm not bringing my family to church. We choose to be unfaithful to our spouse. We choose to commit a crime. We choose recreation over responsibility. We make foolish financial decisions. We choose to build unhealthy relationships. Macro decisions, right? Big, sinful decisions that kind of dictate where our life is going. Now, I want to suggest this. I want to suggest that these macro decisions, these big decisions, don't just happen. I believe they're fueled by what I'm gonna call micro decisions, small decisions, the decisions we make every day. These are daily basis decisions. Micro decisions program our mind and set the tone for our lives. So when we need to make the macro decisions, the big decisions, we're ready. Okay, we're ready. You make enough good micro decisions, when the macro decisions come, you're not like, what do I do now? You're like, I know what to do. Because I've been programming myself on a daily for this. See, micro decisions we need to make is, will I pray today? Will I read God's word? Will I work on the little sins, the little foxes in my life Am I taking care of myself physically? Do my words build other people up? Am I working on my integrity? Am I worshiping? Am I monitoring, monitoring my intake of what could be possibly vices in my life? See, these micro decisions are going to fuel the macro decisions. So you see Daniel and his friends, they were programmed by daily micro decisions to follow God, which was a result of what? Having a godly king that made decisions for his people to keep them on track. You get that? So the macro decisions that Josiah was making actually forced, in a sense, Daniel and his friends to make micro decisions. And we don't like to use the word forced, but the truth is the context which he was bringing them up in was a godly context. Now Nebuchadnezzar, he realized the micro decisions would power the macro ones. And that's why as the king, here's what he did. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years and at the end of the time, they were to stand before the king. So now, here's what, he, here's what he's saying. He's like, okay, I'm going to take these young, good-looking, jacked, smart kids, and I'm going to put them in my system, okay? I'm going to feed them what I want them to eat, and I'm going to educate them in the things that I want them to learn. I'm going to fuel them with these micro-decisions To continue to program them. To be men that serve me and my gods. Think about this for a second. So it says, among them were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah of the tribe of Judah. Nebuchadnezzar knew these guys were Israelites, worshipers of the one true God. He wanted to purge them of that, change who they were, so he took the daily micro decisions out of their hands, made the decisions for them to reprogram them so they would no longer look to the one true God. But guess what? I got news for Nebuchadnezzar. We're going to see what happened, aren't we? So he ordered Ashpenaz, the, the official. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. So here's now what he's trying to do. He gives them these names, and we're going to go over the names and what the names mean. He gave them new names. They were given these new names to change their identity. Okay, Change their identity. So Nebuchadnezzar wanted them to forget the God of Israel. And who their true identity was in. Let's look at what their names meant. Daniel, his given name means God is my judge. The name that Nebuchadnezzar gave him was Belshazzar. Bel, protect my life. Bel was one of the Babylonian gods. Hananiah, God has been gracious. It was changed to Shadrach, command of Marduk, another uh, Babylonian god. Mishael. Who is like God? Meshach, who is like Aku, which is another Babylonian God. And then Azariah, God has helped, was changed to. Oh. What was it changed to? <laughs> <laughs> Servant of Nebo, Abednego, another Babylonian God. Nebuchadnezzar wanted them to be identified by the Babylonian gods, no longer to be identified by the one true God and the name that they were given by their godly parents. So, in some senses now, we have to think about this. Nebuchadnezzar wanted them to be identified with Babylonian gods, change our identity. In some senses now, this is happening to Christians today. Okay, this is what our culture is trying to do to get us to change our identity. When we start to believe our identity is in things and ideas of the world, guess what? That mindset has won. When we start to identify with things over God, when we start to identify with things that are possibly sinful, when we start to identify things that are perceived as good, but actually lead us down a path that we shouldn't go. We have Christians today, right? And listen, I just want to say these things because it's so important. We have Christians today that are more passionate about political leaders than they are about Jesus. They're more interested in politics than they're interested in Jesus. We have Christians today that are more concerned about what the Constitution says than what the Word of God says. We have Christians today that are willing to part ways and leave churches over opinions about pandemics, vaccines, safety guidelines, and social issues. Okay, listen to me for a second. We fall into the trap of identifying with worldly things. Then we make the micro decisions based on those things, which programs us to make macro decisions based on those things. And I'm talking across the boards. Either side, no matter how radical left or how radical right people get, they start to become programmed by things that maybe are good in some senses, maybe are sinful. And we fall into the trap of identifying with worldly things and then making these micro decisions based on those things, which programs us to make the macro decisions based on those things. And guess what? Our identity becomes something more than it actually should be. Because our identity is wrapped up in those things, we forget that our identity should be in Jesus. It should be in the gospel message of Jesus. I hope, I hope and pray that you've picked this up here at our church. Our identity is in Jesus. Our mission is to tell other people about Jesus. Why? Because of that verse here. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men which we must be saved. You know what? No political leader is going to save your soul. No constitution is going to guide you like God's word. Your opinions on health and social issues should not cause division between you and your brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul teaches us this in Romans 12:2. He says, "Do not be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect." You know what? When we make our decisions based upon the transformed mind of Jesus, here's what it does. It not only impacts you today, it not only impacts the future of your family, it impacts decades down the road. Do you know what's going to matter in 50, 100, and 200 years for this church, for your family, and for the community? Do you know? I do. Jesus. Okay? People are going to laugh in the future about some of the decisions. Remember Y2K? Do you remember that? Okay? I remember getting phone calls. I was here at the church. People were like, we're starting canned goods in a garden for Y2K. Okay? I hope nobody's <laughs> offended by that. But we're laughing now, aren't we? Okay? Because of the computer glitch, we weren't going to be able to have food for what? Three days? Okay? So here's the thing. We laugh now, okay? But Christians, were going nuts over Y2K. If you Google it, there's books like, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? And we're laughing now. And granted, we're not in a funny situation here in our world, are we? We're not in a funny situation. But here's what I do know is true. The truth of the gospel matters today. It mattered 2,000 years ago. It's going to matter 2,000 years from now. Nothing else will like the gospel. So we have to know as Christians, as Christian leaders, if we lose our sight, we're no different than the bad kings that Judah had. We're no different. We're maybe not as disgusting, but we're no different because we're not bringing up the next generation to follow the Lord. Then you might ask yourself, well, who in the world should I follow? Well, we have good news. I know a king, and his name is Jesus. We need to test everything by what Jesus teaches. We need to make every decision based on him and based on his word. We need to renew our mind like the scriptures teach us. And when we do, our decisions will have a godly impact on everyone around us for generations to come. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for this day. I'm thankful, Lord, for the godly King Josiah that prepared Daniel and his friends for the journey that we're going to witness. But Lord, we know that this book of Daniel isn't about Daniel. It's about your faithfulness to your people. I pray, Lord, that each decision that we make, we remember that you are a faithful God who loves us and serves us and nothing else matters. All these other things that are going on are minor distractions to get our mind and our focus off you. I pray, Lord, as a church, as believers, that we keep our focus on you So the decisions that we make are glorifying to you and will have a positive impact on the future. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.